Loving Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people. Uh, we pray that by your Spirit you would speak to our hearts and our minds, uh, that we would uh, see and understand the light that is Christ and respond in faith, that we would be light to others, that others might come to know Jesus as well. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated and good morning, everybody. Uh, it is good, good to be back, absolutely. Feels like it's been a little while. Uh, and thanks, a uh, big thank you to everybody who took care of things while I was away, especially to Nick. Uh, Nick, we even grew the congregation by the church family by one, didn't we? That's wonderful. Doing it for the kingdom, mate. That's brilliant. Uh, look, Nick really is. He's easily the best curate I've ever trained. And don't let the fact that he's the only curate I've ever trained <laughs> discourage you. Uh, after three years here, uh, 2017 is almost certainly the last for Nick and Caroline. This year was a bonus. Uh, we managed to twist the bishop's arm and uh, he agreed for the extra year. Uh, so make the most of the time that's left. Uh, change and uncertainty isn't easy. Uh, especially when the bishop is talking about a church plant in Colerenebri. No, he's not. <laughs> but I like to tell that story in the office. Um, and it's not easy. Like, I remember when I was an assistant in Gunnedah, and uh, we were coming to the end of our time there, and it's unsettling not knowing the future. Uh, where would, when would our time be up? Where would we land? What would the town be like? We didn't even know what parish it was going to be. Uh, and then we'd think about our children and their needs and even the friends they're leaving behind. And being in the dark is a little, well, it's a little worrisome. And worry comes out of the unknown, doesn't it? Not knowing. But when you do know stuff, well, that changes everything. When you get the information you're after, that changes everything. As we come to 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to address two worries that these Christians have here in Thessalonica. The first worry is associated with death and bereavement. Friends have died. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. The Thessalonians' concern is more than just grief and bereavement. Uh, because they thought Je uh, Jesus' return was imminent, they thought Jesus was coming back at any tick of the clock, as we should. Uh, because that's true, their concern seems to, for, to be for those relatives, those loved ones, those friends who've already died before Christ has come back. See, I mean, if, if you've already died, how can a person be ready and experience the return of Jesus? That's their question. And remember, these are pagan converts. Death for them was hopeless. It spelled the end. And so no wonder this is their question. Would they, those who have passed, would they be disadvantaged? Would they miss out? Worse, would they be lost? 
And so they lack knowledge. They want the information. And so Paul is eager to put their minds at ease. Notice in verse 13 that Paul at no stage forbids grief. Because we're Christians doesn't not mean that we grieve. Good grief is important. It's emotionally necessary. It's part of being human, I think. If Jesus wept at uh, the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, if he did that, then surely we, as followers of Jesus, are free to do the same. So what is Paul's concern? Well, his concern is grief without hope. We don't grieve like the rest of humanity. Verse 13 tells us that. When we grieve without hope, the danger is that we're denying the very hope that we profess. We don't grieve in an empty way. The world grieves. But we grieve, yes, but with hope. See, the easiest way to illustrate this is funerals. It's very striking. Normally, don't we find funerals for a believer uplifting and encouraging. That's the feedback I get from you. When we farewell loved ones from our church family, we are sad, but we're also enormously encouraged because we know that in the face of death, the gospel and the promise of forgiveness and the hope of the resurrection that our loved one had being raised new, it's all, it all becomes concrete. It's like the gospel is crystallised. There's nothing wishy-washy or empty or hollow. There's no guesswork about what's next for the person that we love. We rejoice because it's not the end but a beautiful new beginning. It's still sad but it's so encouraging, isn't it? Oh, we've had our fair share this year, haven't we? And isn't this why you leave other funerals and you go to other funerals and sometimes you come away feeling empty and disillusioned and disappointed and even depressed for the lack of hope. I mean, where's the gospel? And you say that to me. And I respond and go, well, I'm glad you get it. There's something else here. In three successive verses, the word sleep is used and I know that you know that this is just a euphemism, right? It's a, euph it's a soft way of, of, of saying the dead. Uh, the word cemetery, did you know that it literally means sleeping place? No one had ever imagined actual sleeping takes place there. Further, Paul is not on about this thing called soul sleep. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's something that the Seventh-day Adventists and the JWs teach. No, he's not talking about a soul sleep. He's just using a euphemism, like other parts of the Bible do. So 2 Kings 24, we'll talk about a king who died. It says that he was asleep with his fathers. Or in Daniel 12, where you can read about the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, they will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. It's a euphemism. We know that, don't we? Good. We move on. Now answer this question. Is sleep 
temporary. The napping kind of sleep. Yeah, it is, good. What follows sleep? You wake up, that's right, excellent. There's an awakening, sleep is temporary. Here's the next question, is death temporary? Mm. What follows death? If sleep is followed by an awakening, death is followed by... See, what did Jesus say of Lazarus? My friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go there to wake him up. He's not talking about rousing him with a cold bucket of water, is he? No, he's dead. Great clothes and all. Four days. He stinks. Jesus is not talking about it. He's talking about a resurrection. Great clothes and all. Lazarus, come out. And isn't that a preview of the Christian hope? Death is temporary. Death is followed by resurrection. This is the heart of the gospel. Let me say that again. Death is temporary. It is followed by resurrection. Look at verse 14, just in case you're not sure. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Or if you want the Draycott literal version, uh, Jesus will bring with him those who have died in him. Okay? That's what it means. Our hope for the future, not our worry, but our hope for the future is grounded in the evidence of the past. So that you don't have to worry, you don't have to be in the dark, and you don't have to be ignorant and uninformed, as Paul says in verse 13. See, what's the evidence of the past? Fact, Jesus died. That's a fact, historical fact. What else? What other evidence is there? Well, Christians die. For 2,000 years, Christians have been dying. Okay, we've got two facts. Jesus died, Christians died. Here's another fact. Jesus rose again. And therefore, Christians will rise again. That's right. Do you see? Let me read verse 14 in case you missed it. We believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, died in him. See, let me play a true or false game with you. True or false, one cannot know what will happen after death. True or false? No, it's false. Open the New Testament. You've got it open on your laps. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. You can know. You do know. Let the others speculate with the, oh, we don't know stuff. We do know. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to be ignorant or uninformed. So you know when you're in the waiting room at the doctor's surgery, can you imagine the exit door at the doctor's surgery? Every, every doctor's surgery has an exit door. So you can, can you see it? You go, and instead of this above the door, instead of saying 
exit, it says death. Alright, I know that's, sorry, there's a sigh of... But imagine it, alright, use your imagination, next time you're there and you're feeling sick, that won't be so good for you. But anyway, not even the doctor can help you when death arrives, that's kind of the point. But time and time again, it saddens us as we see people go through the doorway to death, never to return. And one day, maybe we will disappear through that door. And what's through the door? What awaits us on the other side? Is there any guessing? Is there any speculating? You should know the answer to that. Now imagine if someone went through the doorway to death, and then they came back. And they came back from the dead. And then they appeared to 12 of his mates. And then he appeared to his mum, of all things, and some of her friends. Imagine later, this bloke appears to more than 500 at one time. Imagine that. And imagine that those people called the apostles, they wrote it down somewhere. And then 2,000 years later, that apostolic witness, those stories, they're bound in books. And it's printed and it lies on your laps so that you don't have to worry. So that you can know that you do know that you don't have to be in the dark about death. Those in Christ, we don't have to wonder or worry about the future. Just as surely as Christ died and rose again, he promises to do the same for those who belong to him. So what's on the other side of death? Resurrection. With Jesus. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the resurrection. You'll be with the Lord forever. That's what's next. Physically. Spiritually. Moses and Joshua, I reckon they would have loved this picture. I reckon they do love it. You see the Old Testament battle imagery with the cloud and... uh, What else is there? There's uh, the loud command. There's trumpets. Uh, Who's going to miss this? Nobody, I don't think. There's anything but quiet and secretive. About as quiet and secretive as Jericho, I think. And that was anything but. This is a picture of Christ coming. Uh, They call it the parousia. You might have heard that word, maybe not. That's a Greek word, literally normally associated with the coming of Caesar. So Paul's hijacked a word that should belong to Caesar and royalty. But it's not Caesar and royalty that are coming. The one who is coming is the true God. The one who is coming is Jesus. He's the one that's going to appear. And he's the one that rules, not Caesar. So this is very subversive as well. And here is the promise again. Let's read again. Jesus will return, verse 16. He will personally come, verse 17. Those in Christ will be raised. They'll be snatched up. They'll be taken. They'll be awakened because death is only temporary, remember. And those who are alive at the time 
they too will be taken up and will all be with Jesus forever. And what a day that will be. What a day! Can you imagine it? When the world is laid bare, like we read in Zephaniah, and it's made new again. A day when all the world's injustices are made right, all the bitterness and arguing is gone, all the poison and all the worry and the anxiety, that when evil is vanquished, where sin is no more, where death disappears, and a brand new beginning awaits. That's what awaits us. A brand new day with the Lord forever. And this is the good news of the gospel. It's why the gospel is good news. But you know, this talk about Christ's return, it seems they're not just worried about those already gone, they're also worried a bit about themselves. See if you can see it in chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. Notice they know very well about the day of the Lord. Maybe Paul had been reading from Amos. Do you remember when we did Amos? Some of you do. Do you remember? We just read from Zephaniah. That was grim. Uh, thieves and childbirth, they're images that Jesus used in Matthew 24. Okay, and so thieving, burglary, that's unexpected. Uh, labour pains are unavoidable. Is there any escaping labour pains for the pregnant woman? No. How are your hand, circulation back in your hands, Nick? Yeah, good. All right, you just go to a chiropractor if you need to. Uh, both are sudden, and so there's no warning, there's no escape. And the solution, what is the solution to this uh, sudden, unavoidable event? Well, it's to be alert and awake. Look at verse 4 again. You, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Uh, so then, um, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Okay, so if you follow Paul's logic, thieves take us by surprise when they come at night, and because it's dark, you don't see them coming. More, verse 6, at night, most people are asleep anyway. So that's another thing. And if they're not asleep during the night, verse 7, they're probably instead drunk and not in control of their senses. And so darkness, sleep, drunkenness, they're things associated with un being unprepared. I mean, it would be good if the Lord would come and accommodate us uh, in the daytime. We might be ready for him, mightn't we? It'd be light so that we'd see him. We'd be awake. We'd presumably be alert and sober. And so it must be with the coming of Christ. It must be with the coming of Christ. When Jesus comes the first time, he ushers in the dawn of a new day. He ushers in a new age. He ushers in the kingdom of God. He is the light of the world. He reverses the curse with the miracles, which means that the dark, shadowy days begin to dissipate. 
And in Jesus, God has brought us out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. 1 Peter tells us that. And so when Christ comes again, there will be no more night. Night will be gone. Revelation 22 verse 5 tells us that. There will be no more darkness. For the old order of things will be no more. It will be destroyed as will all who belong to it. And the new age will come in all its fullness. And those in Christ will be fully and finally redeemed. So whether you're ready or not depends really on whether you belong to the day or the night. You see the way it's parallel, day or night, light, darkness, sober, drunk, awake, asleep, with Jesus, not with Jesus. Oil's in lamp, no oil in lamp. They're the parallels. And if we belong to the day, then our behaviour will be daytime behaviour. It'll be lived in the light without fear, without shame, without sin, without any darkness. And we won't go yawning through life like we're apathetic or indifferent, reaching for the snooze button, like we're traipsing around in our pyjamas. That's not what people of the light do. If we belong to the day, then our behaviour will be that of the light, the light of the world, in fact. It'll be Christ-like, loving, selfless, giving and gracious and forgiving. And being Christ-like is also like being like the child. The child who was the son, the son, Jesus, who loved and honoured his heavenly father in every way. Look at verse 8 with me. But since we belong to the day, see who do you belong to, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, uh, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. So how do we do this? How do we live as people that belong to the day? How do we live as people who are ready for Christ's coming? And the answer is we're to clothe ourselves with the gospel. We're to put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We're to clothe ourselves with the gospel. The gospel is the answer to both of these worries and fears. And so Paul's response is, guys, it's not about timing. And it's not about where and it's not about when. The answer is always about a person. And that person is Christ. And so the question then is, do you belong to him? Because if you belong to the day, you belong to Jesus. Notice the assurances, not wrath, verse 9, but salvation. See, it's called good news for a reason. It's called salvation because the implication is that we need to be saved. And such is the good news it goes on to tell us that Jesus died for us. See, why did Jesus die? Did he die to be an example? Did he die because he was a super bloke? No, he died because he, you needed him to die. He died for you. That's, that's what it says right there. He died for you. The wages of sin is death. 
Jesus, in dying for us, has died our death. He's bore our wrath for us. And so now we have salvation and now we have life. Christ's death and our life are inseparably connected. He died for us so that when the time does come, irrespective of whether we're literally awake or asleep, don't worry about that, we will live together with him. That's the promise. One more implication, it's the last one. Verse 11, therefore, because all of this is true, because you have this wonderful assurance and because you have these answers, and because you know the gospel, and because you know there's more after death, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just in fact you are doing. Verse 18 of chapter 4, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here's... An application, we are to encourage one another. We are to build each other up. We're to link our arms in arms. We're to walk this together. As our questions come up, as our worries and our fears come up, we're to go to the gospel together, the cross of Christ, and we find there the answers. The other question, though, today is, do you belong to the day or the night? Because if we belong to the day, well, that is good news. And I guess that's why we're here in church, isn't it? That's a mark that you belong to the day. It's a bit of a clue. As we sing songs about Jesus, as we come to the table and give thanks for him, as we pray to God in the name of Jesus, we encourage each other just by turning up. And of course, belonging to the day isn't just for Sundays. We belong to the day. We are people... Not of darkness, but of light and life. And the encouragement also is to go out with the good news and to be those people of light. And we do this because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Does that knowledge awaken you? Does it wake you up? Does it encourage you? And are you encouraging others with this? Because Jesus is coming back. And because that's true, we have a bright, eternal future. And so we live as people of the day, as people of the light, a life of thankfulness to Jesus. For he is coming, and may he find us ready.